Hear that? That's the sound of your farm business growing. Tree planting can work hand-in-hand with food production, help restore nature, and you can even generate extra income. Build the future of your business, your land, and the environment with a Woodland Creation Grant and receive free expert advice to start your tree planting journey. Find out how your business can branch out. Search Woodland Creation today. Grants are for England only. Terms and conditions apply. And welcome to the Crop It Like It's Hot podcast, brought to you by Arable Farming Magazine and the Crop Tech Show. But just quickly, before I get started with my first speaker, don't forget you can get one basis CPD point for tuning into this podcast by emailing the name of the podcast episode plus your basis account number to cpd at basis-reg.co.uk. Being a farmer comes with the privilege of being a custodian of the land and a love of the countryside and wildlife is why many farmers do what they do. In this episode of Crop It Like It's Hot, we're going to speak to three conservationists about how arable farms can become a haven for wildlife. From hedgerow management tips to habitat creation and encouraging more beneficial insects, there's plenty that growers can do to improve the environmental credentials of their farms. So we're going to start the episode by looking at farmland bird species and I sat down with Paul Hopwood of the West Midlands Ringers Group and had a chat with him about what we can be doing to promote bird populations on our farms. So Paul, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast. Um, So I've heard a lot about your ringing group. I know a few farmers that you're involved with. Um, and I just wondered if you could um, start by kind of telling us a bit of background on the West Midlands Ringing Group and what it is you do and why you do it. Okay, so um, many thanks for having us, Alice, today. Um, my name's Paul Hotwood. I'm the secretary of West Midlands Ringing Group. We were formed as a, a group in 2019, but our members had been ringing across the Midlands for some years before that. So we ring across Staffordshire, Worcestershire, West Midlands, Warwickshire and Shropshire. (coughs) And whilst we do a lot of general ringing, um, a lot of our work is focused towards farming. Um, We're quite passionate about working with farmers purely because we think they get quite a bad press. But actually out there, if you go out into the field, there's some really good farmers doing some really good work. So, so our focus throughout the year looks at farming um, and looking at farmland birds in different um, conditions through um, winter ringing, through the use of thermal technology, um, and, and, and also throughout the year in some of the farms where they've got access to different types of birds. But our, primarily, our primary focus really has been the use of thermal imaging cameras, which is sort of change what we know about what's out there and it was our group that pioneered that nice and in terms of like farmland bird numbers we kind of hear a lot of headline figures about how they're depleted and so on um but what is the actual situation out there are they still declining or are we kind of maybe on more of an upwards trajectory now so it's really difficult to answer alice if i if i sort of refer to the British Trust for Ornithology figures, the, the, the data shows that between 1970 and sort of 19 or 2020, there's a 55% decline in farmland birds. 
but it's not all a bad picture because between 2015 and 2020, the decline was a lot smaller. And because we haven't got data for the last few years yet, I think with the the take-up of agro-environment schemes, the picture could be a lot better. We, we certainly see um, good numbers of birds across our farms. Could there be more? Of course, there could always be more. Are there problems out there? 100%. But I think the tide is turning and that farmers are, are starting to do a lot more to encourage birds back into farmland. Yeah, 55% decline is still fairly scary, though, isn't it? Uh, but, but that's across a, a variety of species on the farmland bird index. But during those same periods, some species have recorded a significant increase. So stock dove and gold, um, gold finches have increased by perhaps 50%. So some birds are, are doing better, but there are still some birds that are really, really struggling out there corn buntings, tree sparrows, uh, you know, two of, the, two of the birds that aren't as common as they have been. But I'm quite fortunate in that one of my farms in Staffordshire is, is doing really well for corn buntings and their numbers are increasing year on year, purely down to the way that farm's managed. And in terms of this decline that's been seen, is there anything specific that is kind of going on on farms that's having a particular negative effect on farmland bird populations? So I don't think it's a single issue. There's a number of factors here that play into it. So um, there's a lot of our mixed farming. Um, we've moved to some more intensive um, agriculture and arable farming. Um, there's changes in the crops that we're growing. There's an increase in predators. So predator numbers have increased on farms. So mammalian avian, and avian predators have increased. Um, I'm sure the weather has had an impact on it and migration. A couple of years ago, we had really poor conditions. So migration would have been impacted. Um, so there's not a single issue. If, if, if it if I were to look at it observationally from my experiences, if I look at the advances in technology through sort of farm machinery and the efficiency of combines, there's not much spillage of seeds that goes out of the back of a combine. And it and it was going back to when we weren't using combines that there was a lot of seeds left in the fields um, and we had a lot more birds at that time. But things are changing because we can... Um, we can adapt to that through the use of agro-environment schemes and we can supplement birds feeding during the winter and plant wild bird seed covers. So things are going to try and change that um, position, but it's definitely not a single issue. And are you seeing that farms that are in these kind of... Um, are most of your farms in kind of agro-environment schemes? I'm kind of assuming that they are. Um, I would say all of them are um, in one way or another. We have... We work with a couple of farmers, so Andy Roberts and his dad, John Roberts, over at Pattingham, Jake Freestone um, down at Overbury, um, and other farms across the region. And they're doing some really fantastic work um, to to make a difference, really, for these um, birds. The, the, the key things that we see are the importance of overwintered stubbles, which are huge, which people don't really think about. Um, supplementary winter feed can have a huge impact. 
the way hedgerows are man managed. You know, good hedgerows provide nesting um, habitat and shelter for birds. Um, and then we start to see the increase in field margins, whether it be pollen and nectar or wild bird seed covers, that providing sort of invertebrates during the breeding season for the chicks to feed on. Um, I, I think it's quite a simple process for farmers. So if we took it on a seasonal basis, in the winter, birds need food and shelter. It's quite simple. Hedgerows, stubble fields for birds that roost on the ground and supplementary winter feed will help most of those birds through the hungry gap. As we move into spring, um, we look in a good habitat for nesting, so good quality hedgerows that aren't heavily flailed, um, bits of scrublands that can be left just so the birds can breed. As we get into summer, the, the benefits of margins through pollen nectar covers or hedgerows that have got some flowering plants that increase invertebrates allow that bird to feed its chicks through the breeding season. And as we get into autumn, those adult birds that are probably quite hungry after raising several broods of chicks are looking for food. So if we've got wild bird cover crops, those adult birds and the youngsters are more likely to stay on a farm. So over that four... Um, for seasonal um, year, it's, it doesn't appear to be too complex. I'm sure there'll be scientists out there that will tell me it's far more complicated than <laughs> we're saying, but I would say observationally, breaking it down, it, it's really important to look at just it from a seasonal thing. And for farmers, that doesn't mean a lot to do. Good hedgerows, providing some um, wild bird covers or pollen and nectar, leaving areas of scrub, some supplementary winter feed, it, it, it can all play a big part. Yeah, it doesn't need to be complicated, does it? No, I don't, I, I don't think it, it, it does. And, and, and some of it can be quite simple. Um, overwintered stubbles, the, I, I'm out in the field probably from this week up until March, surveying skylarks and other wader, in, wading birds um, throughout the hours of darkness with thermal cameras. And we will find most of our birds out in overwintered stubble fields. So the birds are a long way from hedgerows and trees because hedgerows and trees at night mean predators. So a large field we'll move perhaps 50 to 100 metres into that field and we'll start to find roosting skylarks. But overwinter stubbles are a real critical factor of that. And um, as we move into different tillage strategies, the use of um, sort of cover crops and mustard that have planted between crops, once they get to a certain height, the birds tend to move away because it's too damp for them to roost or it increases predators. So... We're a firm believer that overwintered stubbles are a real critical part of um, getting those birds through those harsh winter months. Oh, that's interesting. I was going to ask about cover crops and how they, whether they kind of play the same role that stubbles do. So, uh, observationally, again, from our findings, the use of our thermal cameras, and these are really advanced technology pieces of kit that can probably see birds I, I could tell you i could show you a woodcock in a field from 400 meters away from standing on the side of it 
with my thermal camera and probably count every single skylark in the field by just walking across the middle of it. So it, it, with stubbles, we can clearly see them. We can't argue the fact that they may still be in some mustard crops, but as soon as those crops get to a certain height, they might get to six inches, 12 inches, the birds don't like it because the conditions under the leaves are quite damp. So we tend to find that the birds move away from mustard or winter rape crops in back into stubbles. So having stubbles as part of a rotation we think is vital. And then in terms of farmers that you're working with, do you tend to like start at the beginning of the journey with them and then, you know, move along and or, or do you tend to kind of come in when they're they're already doing quite a lot for conservation, but they want to kind of maybe see have have some kind of figures behind what they're doing so uh, it would be wrong for me to say that we go into the beginning in some instances we do go in very early and we've done a project recently around breed and hill sort of at the start of some farmers journey into looking after the birds but in the case of jake overbury and andy over at Bide farm and lower barms farm they've been working with um, and doing some really good practices for the years before we were even with them. The beauty of ringers working on their farms is that they get some tangible records. So yeah. I could I can provide data back from Lower Barnes Farm in Pangham back to perhaps 2016-17 of winter ringing conditions. And, and the same over the last three or four years with Jake and Penelope at Overbury, we can provide that kind of data, which is vital for them when they're going to start to have to um, show um, results if they're to carry on getting some kind of funding through the government. Yeah. And are you seeing continual improvements still in bird species on those farms? Or is it is there a point where, you know, you've got really good populations and that's that? Um, no, so if I if I talked about um, the farm at Pattingham, probably six or seven years ago, there may have been one or two corn buntings on that farm. Last year or two years ago, there were over 50 birds there. So there has been a, a significant increase in that red listed bird species on that farm alone. Again, at overbreed bird numbers are increasing. Um, if people want to see skylarks, there is no better place in the summer to stand on the top of Breeden Hill with many hundreds of birds around there um, flying around. And, and and that's a credit really to the way that um, Jake and Andy are, are farming. Um, Jake puts lots of skylark plots into his um, arable crops and, and they're providing good areas for uh, to support the breeding process of those birds. So th things are definitely on the increase. Excellent. And for farmers, I mean, you mentioned about, um, you know, thermal cameras and things. Obviously, not everyone's got access to them. So for farmers that are, you know, in these environment schemes or they're kind of doing things on their farm to encourage more bird populations, how can they kind of measure success? I mean, obviously, contact the local ringing group. Um, yeah, so, so there'll, there'll be ringing groups across the UK that can support them um, if there's capacity. But there's also lots of different things that farmers can do. They could take part in um, the Game of Wildlife Conservation Trust Big Farm and Bird Count. I think that's a really good way of doing it. 
a really simple way of looking at it is there is an app for your mobile phone called BirdTrack that's produced by the BTO. It's free to download and you can simply record what birds you've seen on your farm. Well, that will allow you to get a picture of birds throughout the season. So bird traps, another simple application. Ringing schemes, again, that's useful. And then if you've got local bird watchers who, who can be trusted to walk around the land, then again, you could consider those. Is the, the app that you mentioned, is that the Merlin bird idea app? No, so bird track is by um, the BTO. It's it's a simple way of um, going out into the field. You can record the species that you see or hear, uh, press a button, and it will send that to the British Trust for Ornithology. So, and that's been a system that's been in place for a number of years. So that's a free app. Merlin is quite a new development, but it's it's really interesting. I was out this morning um, just playing with Merlin just to see how accurate it is. So, so Merlin, again, is a free app. Um, once you get the app, you can download a number of different sort of packages which give you the options of the birds you're looking for. So we'd be looking for birds of Europe and the British birds. And then when you go out into the field, it's as simply as opening your phone opening the app and pressing record and it will pick up birds around you so it will pick up the calls of birds that it can hear yeah accuracy was getting better and better so i picked up quite a lot of different species this morning on bird um, on the merlin app so it, it does work that it's got some limitations but as technology improves it will get better and better and better so again it's a really good app that you could use you could use it in isolation or you could also use um, the Merlin app and then transfer that into um, your bird track guidance um, data. Yeah, no, it's so handy. I've got the Merlin app, but I'm never sure how accurate it is because it seems to pick up so many species. If it's picking up something really, really unusual, then there, there might be problems. But today I would suggest that I had probably 100% accuracy on on more common species when I was out on a farm this morning. Nice. Okay, well, for the final question, I was going to ask you what, you know, arable farmers can do as kind of one thing that could really help bird populations on their farm, but I've got a feeling you're going to say overwintered stubbles. I don't want to sound like a politician, <laughs> if, I'm, <laughs> if I'm honest, but if the decline in farmland birds hasn't got a single issue, I don't think there's a single thing that we could do to improve it. So, from my point of view, if you think of birds needing food, shelter, breeding habitat, then hedgerows are really good. So, consider um, a rotational um, cut of the hedges rather than annually. Consider getting into schemes where you could look at having some field margins, um, pollen and nectar mixes, wild bird seed crops, consider supplementary winter feed. Um, what I will say, and I'm not here to criticise any type of farming, but if I went out onto a recently ploughed field in the Midlands that's just been ploughed, I won't find a single bird on that field at night. They just don't go on there until the crop has um, established somewhat. So tillage strategies, for me, are really, really important. However, 
they shouldn't be considered in isolation. So you could have the, the most beautiful soil, but if you've got no hedgerows and you've got huge fields, it doesn't mean to say that you're going to increase the birds on your land. Zero till and min till strategies are really important for for wading birds, woodcock, um, common snipe, jack snipe, golden plover. They love that because of the increase in invertebrates in it that you don't see on full inversion fields. And, and that's something we continually see and we know is seen across the UK Um annually by bird ringers who are using thermal technology yeah no that's brilliant and most of those things you can get paid for through sfi or countryside stewardship so it's a no-brainer 100 yeah, percent. so it, it's it's a winner at the moment for farmers sfi and countryside stewardship offer lots and lots of different options for farmers um there's I'm sure there's lots of help out there from agronomists we work very closely with um, the Farm Wildlife Advisory Group flag for the Southwest, and they've been brilliantly supported. So, if farmers aren't engaged with these people, I'd really recommend they do so. Now, Paul mentioned hedgerow management there, which was a perfect entree for our next guest. My colleague Ash Elwood spoke to Megan Gimber, Key Habitats Officer at People's Trust for Endangered Species and self confessed hedgerow geek about the importance of good hedgerow management. So we've got Megan Gimber here to chat to us about all things hedgerows, um, top tips and sort of management. Um, so Megan, if you can just start just with a, a bit of a brief introduction about yourself and how your job can sort of connect with hedgerow management. Absolutely. So um, I work for a charity called People's Trust for Endangered Species. Um, but actually, I, I'm there as a habitat expert and my, my main focus um, is hedgerows. In fact, I am, I, I think I could say quite happily, I am a card carrying hedgerow geek. Um, and I love all things about hedgerows, the, 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 the amazing things they do for wildlife, um, the habitat in general, the history behind it, you know, and what they do for us as well. So I really am um, a, a, a big hedgerow geek uh, and, and management, obviously, <laughs> it's quite important to all of that. Absolutely. No, that's great. Um, so sort of in light of the government um, incentivising hedgerow planting, um, why do you think this is happening and what sort of benefits can hedgerows generally provide arable farmers? So the government um, has some fantastically ambitious plants for, for new hedgerow planting, and I think this is absolutely brilliant. Um, we did lose a, a lot of hedgerows last century, um, mainly through government incentives. Um, so I think uh, it's fantastic that there's, that there's grants available now to be putting those hedges back in. Um, and of course, you know, it's it's not just for the wildlife um, that these hedges are valuable. Um, they do absolutely marvellous things for for carbon storage as well, um, but also really beneficial for our farming. Um, and of course, you know, a lot of that comes from the way we manage them. If we manage hedgerows so that they're healthy, they are fantastic for 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 all of these sort of benefits. Um, but what they can actually do for us, well, um, for livestock farmers, I think it's a little bit different from arable farmers. For livestock farming, you know, they provide shelter, shade, diet diversity uh, and add to biosecurity as well. Um, so really, really help our sort of important welfare standards um, as well as sort of rearing healthy and profitable livestock. But actually, you know, for the, for the arable farmer, um, they do also benefit our crops as well. Uh, firstly, they obviously provide a good windbreak. Um, uh, which is really important. You know, they, they can reduce crop lodging, they can reduce chilling injuries, all sorts of things there. 
They, they might also be able to help us reduce our pesticide use. So increasing the populations of beneficial insects in our which live in our hedges and then commute out into the fields. Um, things like predatory spiders, lacewings, ground beetles, parasitic wasps, hoverflies, um, they all commute into our fields from our hedges um, and eat up things like um, uh, green fly and, and things like that, um, that that might be predating our crops. Um, and of course, you know, it's not just the, the predators that, that live in our hedges. Um, hedges are also really amazing for our pollinator species. You know, they, they offer forage flowers throughout the year and not just when our crops happen to be in flower, um, as well as providing, you know, habitats where our pollinator species can have their, their summer breeding nests and their winter hibernation nests. So hedges are a really, really valuable thing to make sure we've got good, healthy pollinator communities um, around our crops. And then, of course, there's other things. They, they help reduce soil erosion. Um, actually, two ways they do that, uh, partly by reducing the wind speeds. So when we've got sort of dry um, uh, crumb soil, they'll help reduce how much soil actually gets blown away. Um, but also in times when we've got heavy rain like we've got today, <laughs> um, they, they, they might reduce the amount of, of soil that's washed away in, in floods. They help um, the increase the rate of water infiltration into the soil too, helping the soil act a bit like a sponge and soak up some of that flood water rather than sort of washing it all out into our streams and rivers. Brilliant. Gosh, lots and lots of benefits um, <laughs> to restoring those hedges. Oh, absolutely. And That's just a few of them. I mean, I didn't even mention, you know, the soaking up of pollution, the soaking up of carbon, um, but also, you know, a number of our sort of less quantifiable benefits as well. You know, they are a defining feature of our countryside. I'll often, if I'm standing at the top of a hill looking out at the country, I just think, what would this look like if we took all of our hedges and hedge trees away? And it's um it's it's quite it's quite powerful. You know, they've got quite significant cultural importance, I'd say. Yeah, absolutely. And with people looking to um, sort of plant hedges and, and relay hedges, are there any types that are more beneficial than others or what would you suggest in that respect? I would always say um, go for a mixed species hedgerow. So um, <laughs> uh, hedges hedges when they're when they've got a lot of species and actually support much more wildlife and it makes them more robust as well. Um, so but but again, you know, when you're when you're planting a hedge, that hedge has to work for your farm. So we've got to make sure that 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 whatever you're putting in works for the farm that, that's there. So I would always say if you have a choice, plant a mixed species hedge and make sure you include trees as well. I know hedgerow trees can be a little bit controversial. Um, they, they, they can obviously cast shade into the field, but there's things that you can do to to avoid that. Um, I would say if you're planting a new hedge, any hedges on the east to west direction then you can put maybe um smaller tree species your your rowan species and you know maybe even a, a couple of hawthorns that you let let to grow up into trees and that will reduce the shading impact um into the into the field um but of course then you can put your big trees your oaks and your beeches or whatever they might be in your north south hedges um where they don't have so much shading impact but they do actually have a much better sort of role in in um in preventing sort of prevailing wind damage Great. OK. OK. So once we've sort of planted our hopefully mixed species hedge and um, moving forward, what is the importance of then managing that hedge? 
hugely important. So how we manage hedges affects how healthy they are um, and, of course, how much they benefit wildlife and how, how, how many of those benefits that I've described that they do for us as well. Um, I think if we trim them to the same height too long, they, they start losing structure at the base, they get increasingly stressed, they begin to lose stems and they get gappy. When they're treated like that, hedges actually fade from the countryside and, and are eventually lost completely, which is terrible. But worse still, in the process, they're not even living up to any of their potential. They're, they're not living up to their ecological, their environment or their economic potential. So really trimming to the same height each year is is um, a terrible way to, to manage hedges. But similarly, you know, we also risk losing hedges when we stop managing them altogether. Um, you know, while a hedge might be fine with a period of no trimming for a decade or so um you know we can't we can't let them go that way indefinitely they do actually need to be trimmed and managed to stay as hedges you know without any management the hedge plants race up they again they'll lose that wonderful dense structure they'll eventually lose stems and turn into a sort of gappy tree line um, and i'd say there's a happy compromise somewhere in the middle there <laughs> um, where we do trim them but we trim them sensitively and when we're talking about sort of generally um, hedgerow management here, a little bit of talk about sort of um, rejuvenation or hedge trimming. Can you sort of tell us a bit of a difference between the two and, and when you might be looking to do each practice? Oh, of course. Yeah. So um, I, I often hear uh, a sort of a bit of a, an either or, you know, you, you can either lay it or trim it or you shouldn't be trimming it. It's better to lay it. But actually, <laughs> I'd say that both of these things are, are essential and really complement each other as well. It's not a matter of choosing between trimming and rejuvenation. The combination together is the real winner. So um, rejuvenation is when you is when you basically reset the hedgerow life cycle. Hedges have a natural inherent life cycle and rejuvenation is that bit that resets it and gives it another turn of the wheel. It gives a hedge another lifespan essentially. So really rejuvenation like coppicing and laying is a bit of a superpower. It sort of essentially gives hedgerows immortality when you do it every generation or so. Um, and really that's because when you cut a hedge right at the very base, right near the ground, the regrowth you get is from the very base, which means the whole hedge is rejuvenated. Um, again, giving it that extra life cycle. Whereas trimming is is much more of a routine maintenance that you might do between rejuvenation events. Um, and trimming, hedge trimming is is really flexible, and again can be can be um, tailored and changed to all to to suit the needs of your farm. Um, but trimming is really good because it can extend the amount of time between needing to lay and coppice again you know before we had trimming coppicing and, and laying might have been done on a sort of 15 year cycle but if we trim hedges in between we can extend that up to about sort of 30 40 years so you might you might go 30 or 40 years without having to relay uh, that hedgerow and sort of how often should we be trimming hedges you know is there any sort of closed period or legalities for people to consider with this yeah absolutely so um I would say not trimming hedges too often is the first thing I would I would say. You know, hedges flower and fruit on second year wood and older. So if we trim them to the same point every year, we trim away all of the blossom, we trim away all of the berries, all of the things that make it so wonderful and valuable for wildlife. Um, and that's why the sort of two or three year rotational trimming has always been part of the agri-environment schemes. 
Um, and again, they will also be part of the new um, sustainable farming incentives, the SFI hedge actions. Um, but of course, you know, there are places where longer trimming rotations aren't convenient. Um, and luckily, there is another approach, again, that is also in the SFIs, which is fantastic, um, called incremental trimming. Now, personally, I think it's a bit of a terrible name. I think we could we could do a bit better than that, but I haven't <laughs> thought of a better name than that yet. Um, but this has huge benefits as well um, in places where you can't do a longer trimming mutation. So trimming a hedge, incremental trimming essentially is cutting your hedge slightly higher and slightly wider than last time. Now, this might just be 10 centimetres, um, you know, 10 centimetres, it, it, but that makes all the difference. Um, essentially, what it does is mean you keep a border of young wood at the edge of your hedge by trimming it 10 centimetres higher each year, um, which means you've always got a border of young wood at the edge of your hedge that will always flower and always fruit, even on years when you're cutting it. Um, trimming as well, it sort of adjusts the balance of hormones in your hedge bushes which then encourages branching growth rather than vertical growth. So you end up getting a really nice dense hedge as well. Um, and again, this approach means your hedge might retain some leaves uh, as opposed to if you're trimming it right back to the wick each year. Um, so it doesn't you know, look like a winter hedge, just a barren row of sticks, uh, even when cut in autumn. Um, but it also, I think this is this is one of my favourites, it prevents that sort of formation of scar tissue at the trim line. Um, when a hedge is trimmed, you know, too frequently at the same height, it, a lot of hedge plants will then develop this sort of scar tissue that we we, we hedge geeks uh, refer to as a, a knuckle um, at the trim at the trim line. Um, and actually, to be honest, that that then avoids you blunting your flail head on the trim line if you're cutting it <laughs> 10 centimeters higher. So really, I think incremental hedge trimming is a real win win win. You know, I'm not I'm not personally a tidy, uh, a tidy minded person. I prefer hedges a bit more wild and woolly, um, but actually incrementally trimmed hedges do look really neat if that's your if that's your sort of thing. Um, but as to timing, yeah, timing again makes all of the difference. Um, of course, we're not allowed to, to, to trim our hedges between March and the end of August. Um, and this is really to protect nesting birds. So things like yellow hammers and turtle doves, both of which red listed, um, they'll still have active nests all the way through August. Um, and actually with our springs becoming a bit more unpredictable, there's a lot more species that are likely to be reliant on the success of second broods. Um, and again, not just birds, but other things like dormice might actually benefit from this as well, because they'll have active nests and hedges all the way through to October. Um, uh, but actually, you know, um, it it uh, it does a hedge <laughs> no good to be cut in August anyway. So this is probably for the best. <laughs> um, thinking if you think about it, you know, if if you cut a hedge in August, it'll have only had three months, I think, in leaf May, June, July. Yeah, about three months in leaf before being trimmed. So again, not enough not enough time really for them to stay healthy in the long term. Um, but of course, you know. It, we are we are able to cut our hedges from September, um, but this does unfortunately cut off, you know, all the berries and all the nuts. Um, hedges are sort of wildlife's larder in the countryside um, and the, the, the fruit and the nuts that they contain really do help our birds and our mammals fatten up in preparation for winter. Um, and if we cut them in September too frequently, it does mean we sort of cut away a lot of that that resource. So, I mean, we always say where it's possible cut them a little bit later, ideally January, February, although we do know that obviously areas on heavy clay or areas with, with heavy soil can get too waterlogged. 
um, and that can create problems with soil compaction. But I think under the SFIs, this is dealt with quite nicely. Um, with the trimming rotations, if you're on a two year cycle, you have to cut them late winter, so January or February. Um, and that's again give, giving the hedge chance to sort of provide its fruit and nuts for for for, for the winter. Uh, but if you're on a three-year hedgerow trimming cycle, you can cut any point from September to 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 February. Um, so there is again in in the SFIs, there's quite a lot of flexibility within that to to make sure that you know it's it's um it's fine for your your farm whatever soil you're on, but whilst also providing for wildlife. Um, you mentioned uh, a little ago about sort of carbon um, sequestration and just give us a little bit more information about sort of how hedges can benefit carbon and is there yet a way to quantify what sort of impact they have? <laughs> oh, this is a big and quite difficult question. <laughs> um, <laughs> yes, D hedges definitely do sequester and store carbon. Um, and they actually do this in several different ways. So first of all, hedgerow trees do like all trees do and sequester and store carbon. Um, yeah. uh, so hedgerow standard trees are a fantastic, a fantastic addition. But hedges also uh, store carbon in their structure, in their you know physical woody structure, um, also in the roots below soil. Um, and they also accumulate soil organic carbon in the soils around them. Um, which is fantastic. And that accumulation, it looks like, goes on for 50 years. So it's continuing to store carbon within the soil for 50 years since they were planted. There's actually there's quite a lot of research at the moment about hydrocarbon. Um, and we I think we're we're far from knowing the whole picture <laughs> is what I'll say. We, we are, we're learning more and more all the time, but we don't know everything. Um, we can quantify it for certain types of hedges. But again, this changes depending on the species mix and, uh, you know, how they're managed and how old they are and whether they're laid. Um, but I think a few of the really interesting things are that we have that we have found out is that firstly, wider hedges store more carbon. So per volume, wide hedges are particularly uh, beneficial. Um, hedgerows that are laid are more carbon dense, so store more carbon. Um, but again, there are, there are many actual ways that we can increase the amount of carbon in our hedges um, with just a few tweaks to our management, actually. So first of all, I would say more hedgerow trees, definitely. Um, that's you know not just great for carbon, but great for the wildlife as well. Um, replanting all of our hedgerow gaps, so gapping up our, our, our gappy hedges, but then allowing those hedges to be bigger, sort of on average, I would say on average within their life cycle, we can have them a lot bigger. Um, and, you know, those are, those are things we can do before we've even got to the idea of planting more hedges. Um, but, you know, there are loads of targets uh, for, for planting for planting more. And I think um, many people People are looking at sort of a 40% increase in hedgerow extent. So that will, again, go a long way to, to, to establishing more, more carbon storage. Um, so again, yeah, we can establish more hedgerow trees. I think that's a great idea. We can make hedges bigger in general. Um, we, can, uh, we can gap up our hedges as well, um, and then we can plant, plant new ones. So plenty, plenty of ways we can be actively increasing the carbon stored there. And sort of in the UK, is there a way we can sort of monitor if we're increasing hedgerows or if we've got more or less? Is there any sort of way to monitor this across the board? There's, um, yeah, there are, there are. So um, 
there's a, um, a survey done every decade or so called the Countryside Survey. So this is done by UKCEH and generally paid for by the government. Um, the last one was done in 2007. Um, and it, it sort of looks at, at um, the extent of hedgerows, but also how healthy they are. And it's fantastic because it, it covers nationwide. It's a nationwide um, survey, professional survey. Um, and that's actually happening again this year. So we're going to get an update from our 2007 data this year, which is going to be really very valuable. Um, there's an old adage that says you, you, you can't you can't improve what you're not measuring. Um, and having that data really does help us know what guidance is needed, what where the funding is needed and, and, you know, what direction things like conservation effort needs to go in. Brilliant. Yeah, that'll be really interesting. We'll definitely keep a lookout for that when that gets reported. And just lastly, sort of what would be your top tips, you know, your bullet point top tips for arable farmers to manage their hedges? I would say have a close look at your hedges. Go out and have a look at them in winter. How are they doing? Um, are, are, the, are the bases of the hedge still dense? Are they getting a bit thin? Are the stems getting a bit few and far between? Um, we've actually created a free app called Healthy Hedgerows. Um, it's completely free and it's really fast and simple to use. So um, it, it assesses the, the hedgerow condition and health and gives you um, immediate management advice options based on the answers you give. So six questions long, really quick and simple to do and totally free um, to download and to use. It's called Healthy Hedgerows. Um, and again, hedgerow monitoring and hedgerow assessing is another element that the SFIs, the Sustainable Farming Incentives, um, are, are bringing in. So it's it's another another area where, where you can be um, getting getting money from the government as well. Um, but other than that, I, I would say certainly go out and look at your hedges. Just really, really have a close look and see how they're doing. Where are they in the life cycle? You know, what what do they need next? Um, uh, most of our hedges are, are better. They're all better, in fact, when we manage them according to where they already are in their life cycle. So first we need to look at that and assess it. Um, but in general, I would say trimming hedges is, is not bad but it needs to be done sensitively. Um, don't trim them to the same height each time because, you know, they're living things. They're not green walls. Um, they, they do better once they're allowed a little bit of space. Don't trim them every year if possible. Um, establish more hedgerow trees anywhere you can um, and start rejuvenating hedges as well through through laying and coppicing and, and starting to get your hedges back into that sort of traditional management cycle. Um, your hedges will be uh, will have, thank you for it. <laughs> um, and it's really it's the only way to, to make sure that we have hedges in the long term. You know, we've actually got a lot to thank farmers for when it comes to hedges. Hedges are a man made man managed habitat. Um, and it's centuries of farming that's led to the wonderful network of hedge hedges that we have today. Um, you know, managing hedges certainly isn't always easy. But the reason that we've still got so many wonderful ancient hedges is testament to farmers. You know, they've they've been they've been laid or coppiced, they've been rejuvenated, you know, once a once a generation or so throughout their history. So really, we've got a sort of um, a, a, an, an unbroken chain of care. That, that has led to our wonderful, wonderful sort of complement of hedges around the countryside. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's testament to that wonderful chain of care that we've got, got this. Uh, and we need to make sure that we appreciate that and make sure that we carry on rejuvenating our hedges so generations to come can also benefit from them. 
Oh, that's brilliant. Thanks so much. That's really interesting stuff. So thanks for joining us today on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. And finally, it wouldn't be an arable podcast if we didn't talk about the importance of beneficial insects. So my last guest on today's episode is Dr. Ben Woodcock, ecological entomologist at the UK Centre for Ecology and Hydrology. Ben, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. We're going to have a bit of a chat about encouraging more insects and mammals and kind of general biodiversity onto arable farms. But apart from the, you know, obvious reversing declines of certain species and things like that, why do you think we should be kind of encouraging general biodiversity onto our arable farms more? What are the benefits for farmers, I suppose? Yeah, so you're entirely right. When it comes to biodiversity, you can argue there's two components to this. There's the overall biodiversity. Isn't it lovely to have lots of species in the in the wider environment, which is great and really important, and it's got a huge cultural value in the UK. But there's a specific subset of those species uh, that do provide what we what we call ecosystem services. So this is. Um, stuff that has value to the uh, kind of farming community and that might be natural pest control so predatory ground beetles feeding on slugs or parasitic wasps parasitizing uh, like weevils in um, in oilseed right this kind of thing it might be pollinators so stuff like honeybees wild bees hoverflies these kind of things that, that are integral for supporting increases in yields particularly in some crops like top fruits and uh, um, soft fruits that particularly uh, play a very vital role there but also in other crops broad acre crops like oilseed rape where you might see a 10% bump in yield associated with pollination depending on the variety there's also other aspects as well that can contribute um, such as good soil health so talking about the, the, the earthworms and the other insects that are present within there that help reduce compaction help move nutrients through the soil and a key for good soil health. Yeah, it's such a broad topic, isn't it? Like there's so many different kinds of beneficial insects out there. It's kind of hard to pin down one thing that we can focus on. But sort of on the whole, in your view, what is at the moment, you know, having like the biggest negative influence on insect and mammal populations? We obviously hear things like overuse of tillage, pesticides, um, bigger fields with less hedgerows or margins. Is there anything that, you know, in your view is, I guess, the the greater evil? Yeah, I mean, he, I think there's two aspects here. There's getting insects and, and beneficial insects into the crop, and that is directly affected by stuff like tillage, uh, how you're managing the crop, those kind of factors, crop Field size very much has an effect, um, and that relates to the fact that each year your field is harvested, and fundamentally stuff needs to recolonise into that. However, from a wider perspective, when you start thinking about how to support biodiversity and, and specifically these beneficial insects uh, that we find within agricultural land or, or other kind of arable um, arable land, particularly, you're talking about the loss of semi-natural habitat, that had a massive negative effect. Now that is linked to other things like increases in field size, historically loss of hedgerows, but 
what this has done is meant that, that from a perspective of many of the, these insects that provide key resources, they simply do not have areas within farming systems where they can persist throughout the year. So the big change, uh, probably since the 1992 Rio de Janeiro Biodiversity Conference, the one that, that really drove the, the movement towards agro-environmental schemes, has been the creation of stuff like fill margins, grassland restoration, all these kind of practices that have attempted to create semi-natural or at least extensively managed habitats within the context of farming systems that, that provide key resources, and that's resources for them to feed on in the year and also for overwintering sites outside of the year. And that's, that's important for a wide range of insects and it's important for a wide range of mammals as well, particularly kind of uh, rodents, shrews, those kind of things that are present within those kind of habitats. Uh, from, a, from a wider perspective, you, you've also got the issue that, that modern agriculture is highly dependent on the use of insecticides and the reality is that we probably couldn't produce the food that is required to support the world without these. However, these can undeniably have a negative effect on native wildlife. So a movement towards reduced use, not necessarily preventing it, but as part of an integrated pest management strategy, so you, you try and minimise use of insecticides, is also like to have, a, have an effect or a positive effect on these uh, beneficial insects and, and wider biodiversity overall. And I'm a big advocate for kind of a messy farm, you know, a lot of people do like no mow may and things like that now. Is that the kind of thing you're thinking, just maybe not being as meticulous with how tidy you keep your farm? Or is it more about concentrating like specific areas within fields and things? Or is it just uh, whatever you can do the better, really? Yeah, I mean, very much, you know, it's, it, for, a lot, for a lot of insects, um, particularly in agricultural land, there's this idea of creating lots and a wide variety of habitats for them that are spread out across the, the kind of wider farming environment. Now, obviously, that can be helped by, as you say, slightly allowing certain areas to, to uh, become more natural, you know, reducing the management intensity within them. However, when you start talking about slightly more targeted management practices like fill margins, in a lot of cases, what we're trying to do here is establish a, a specific suite of plants that we know are quite important for, for our native biodiversity. Now, often those are targeted towards pollinators. Um, the establishment of them does depend on good management. And, and it's often quite a hard thing to achieve because you, on typically farmers are really good at establishing crops while flowers are slightly different and, and that requires you know particular timing it requires good seedbed preparation so there's a, there's a lot of issues when it comes to establishing those that make a difference and in those cases actually quite targeted management could be really important because you are trying to create a particular habitat and i, I often think when you stop talking about beneficial insects, you can consider it as managing your farm to maximise these populations. You're, you're, you're targeting particular parts of biodiversity and saying, I want to increase the populations of that, be they pollinators, be they these kind of predatory insects, all these different kind of factors. Yeah. One argument we kind of have on our farm is I'm trying to, you know, keep, keep all this... Um, keep margins long and scruffy and hopefully encourage lots of biodiversity and bugs and things but is that also likely to increase the pest 
populations because um, you've kind of got that green bridge there and it's more as, as a host for those pests as well as, the, as well as those beneficials. So I think, I think this comes down to the extent to which you as a farm are engage, engaging with something like integrated pest management. You know, you could make a strong argument that if you were just targeting yield, you had no interest in anything else, you would just hammer the crop with insecticides. That would probably be quite an effective strategy to a point. You know, that would promote in, insecticide resistance, like we see flea beads or, you know, long term, that is not a sustainable solution. But in the short term, that definitely potentially could work. However, we're not like this. This is something from, you know, 20 years ago, these kind of management strategies. Modern farms aren't like that. And there's obviously this big push now towards integrated pest management, certainly through the SFI and organizations like the Voluntary Initiative that, that drive these approaches. And that's and in that context, you are talking about lots of different management practices to minimize um, the use of insecticides. That's the integral part of it. Now, natural pest control fits into that. It's one of the tools within the kind of management suite that you've got available with you to try and reduce reliance on insecticides. So in those cases, yeah, it, it's, you need those kind of targeted management practices like fill margins, stuff like infill strips, which are kind of a relatively new um, variation on something like, you know, the historical beetle banks. But the idea of those is you're reducing field size and giving these beneficial insects an opportunity to move towards and into the crop. So I think, you know, when we're talking about this, we're talking about, you know, a complex series of management practices. There is no magic bullet that is going to kind of maintain biodiversity or, or you know, dramatically increase crop yields. But promoting pollination, promoting natural pest control, promoting good soil health and the, the kind of invertebrate, the insect worm, all these kind of communities that go along with that, is all part of what we're trying to do to move more towards a kind of sustainable management system within farming. Yeah, I guess it's kind of finding that realistic balance between promoting beneficial insects, but also, you know, protecting your crop and making sure that you do still get yeah. a decent yield. Yeah, 100%. I mean, farms need to be profitable. It is unrealistic to think that, that that is an option. You know, if you wanted to benefit biodiversity the maximum, you would stop farming, but then the whole world would starve. That is not something that is viable. And it's likely not viable that agrochemicals are going to disappear, certainly not in the foreseeable future. It's just finding ways that we can minimise those and, and reduce reliance on them, but while still keeping them as part of that management toolbox. And fundamentally, the more you can reduce insecticide use, fungicide use, herbicide use, the longer those active ingredients are likely to remain viable and part of the kind of toolbox the farmers have got available. You know, it, it is a kind of win-win situation if we can move down this line of reduced reliance because you probably still need them. But what you don't want to do is something that, for example, happened with black glass, where the overuse of herbicides to control that effectively led to complete resistance in certain areas. And now there's very little that can be done to control those outside of cultural control practices. You know, the same thing will happen. It's happening with flea beetle. And 
you know, it, it's providing the the opportunities to control these kind of pests, moving into that integrated pest management kind of uh, concept. So moving on to a different topic slightly, um, at CUKCEH, you have a new project which is using artificial intelligence to monitor. Um, you know, insect and mammal populations. Could you just tell us a bit more about that, how it works and what you hope to kind of achieve from it? Yeah, so this is a project we've got called Ag Zero, which is a a big part of this is trying to move farms towards um, uh, uh, kind of uh, carbon sequestration, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, but doing that in the context of trying to maintain those biodiversity gains that we've achieved through, you know, agri-environmental schemes over the last 30 odd years. Um, it's a project funded by uh, Natural Environment Research Council and BDSRC and we're, we're working with Rottenstead Research as well on this. So it's a very big project but one of the components that we're looking at is this idea of um, automated monitoring of not just kind of pests, which is something that's been done in top fruits now for quite a while using kind of image recognition photographs to try and look at pest populations, but moving that along to try and do a very similar thing, but trying to understand populations of um, predatory insects. And this has always been one of the issues with, uh, I think, farmers' reliance on something like um, natural pest control. If you're talking about insecticides, you kind of know it works. You know if you spray it, it's likely to have the desired effect. It's one of those, it's it's a a reasonably uh, understood process. You've got a good confidence. The problem with a lot of natural pest control is it's always been a bit of a black box. You've got, you know, you can do things to benefit them. You can do fill margins. You can do, you know, fill corners. You can do stuff that is going to promote, say, uh, ground beetles or, or parasitic insects. So, so there's a lot of understanding that you can benefit them. What you don't tend to know is, is how well those populations are actually doing. And what we want to move towards is a situation where we can actually give farmers the kind of tools similar to this kind of image recognition pest monitoring that you see in some top fruits that will allow them to try and understand the populations of the predators. Because if we can do this, in the long term, we can move towards threshold-based insecticide applications that take this into account. They take into account what is your current, what's your pest population, but what is also the population of the predatory insects that are present there. And if you've got a good population, can you offset the kind of economic threshold of when you should be spraying because you know you're likely to have pest control. So this is something we're doing now. Now, we've got these new approaches that we're trying at the moment. We're starting with ground beetles particularly through um, an app called um, um, eRecorder that that's, uh, effectively take you allows you to collect insects using something like a pitfall trap, which is just a cup buried in the ground. And what this will do is you can take a photograph of the insects that you get with those, and it will allow you, allow you to automatically identify them. Now, we already do a similar thing with plants. This is moving on to that, allowing farmers to actively monitor their predator populations in individual fields, and then allowing them to get information on what those individual species do and likely how good they're going to be in providing pest control. Sounds great. So is this something that farmers can get involved with at the moment? 
it, it, it's in that kind of beta development phase at the moment. So it's something that's going to um, come out very soon, hopefully. Um, we're, we're, we're currently trialing a lot of these approaches. Um, but yeah, it, it will be, it's kind of a, a slightly watch this space situation. But very much just to say, you know, this is a non-commercial um, operation. This is something that, that is, uh, the aim is to provide this um, through the Ag Zero product as, as something that farmers can have access to and, and you or agronomists as well and, and allow them to get more information on whether the way that they're managing their land is actually being successful in what they're trying to achieve and obviously this is the kind of thing that will feed into kind of an integrated pest management assessment uh, over the long term it's it's good to know that because it's hard to kind of know that what you're doing is actually making a measurable difference isn't it when you're every season is different biology is so interchangeable so having you know these tools and also as kind of decision support tools as well is really handy yeah and i think it, one of the things I, you know i would say is relying on stuff like natural pest control or pollination it, it is a natural process so it has natural variability it's not likely to be the same across every field you know insects often respond at landscape scale so bees for example will be foraging over hundreds thousands of meters and so the structure and complexity of like flowering patches across those landscapes makes a difference and, and when you've got that opportunity to directly measure in a particular field you know how how good is natural pest control in this field it then provides an information base for the farmer where they can make a decision it's like well actually you know i am concerned about this because there's very little in terms of natural pest control that might feed into future management to try and support that but it allows you to make a more direct understanding of whether reliance on um insecticides is something you've got to go down now or whether there's an opportunity to offset that yeah and the new sfi um is kind of out now and everybody knows a bit more about it and there are things in there like the you know no insecticide module um, I just wanted to kind of get your thoughts on the scheme and how it might benefit biodiversity. Yeah, so, I mean, very much. I think the, the bit that I think is really relevant here is the, the IPM um, component of the new uh, SFI. Uh, the, you know, that has got multiple aspects of it. It's got your, your actual direct assessment for IPM, um, but it's also got that that creating the, these, as I said, these semi-natural habitats, often targeted, associated with the croplands, which is what you want if you're trying to maximise the number of insects that you can increase that are beneficial, but also get them into the crops. So stuff like flowerage, fill margins, tussock grasses, these kind of things that provide overwintering habitat for you know, a range of predatory insects. But also, as I said, these infill strips that provide these kind of highways to get the beneficial insects into the crop. So all of that is present within that. And then also, obviously, you've got kind of the companion cropping component of this, which is, again, it all fits into this. Maybe that's, that has an impact on biodiversity, but it certainly has uh, it's more cultural control method or cultural management method for feeding into that kind of overall in, um, integrated pest management approach. But the fact is that you need these different components to feed into the kind of no-use insecticides. Now, uh, we've work with a lot of farmers in the past who have gone down a no insecticide approach there they'll still be using herbicides and they still be using fungicides because often those are the, you know, the more important impactors on yield but 
often when people go down this approach, it, you know, they, they highlight that there is an initial period of kind of concern. It, it is hard to go down this, to make that decision not to apply insecticides because they are a reliable control method for pests. But one of the things that we often hear is that there's an initial year, two years where there's kind of concern, but that also feeds into when these beneficial insects are building up in their populations. You, you've got your, your background and semi-natural habitat that you've established. So this is often like a transition period where there's, you know, it might seem very unstable moving towards something that has that kind of no-use insecticide, the ITM4 option um, under the, uh, the, the SFI. Um, but, you know, longer term, this is something that's potentially might be valuable within the context of an individual farming system. And this is likely to become more so in the future as we move towards greater restrictions on insecticide use or the actual loss of active ingredients overall, either because they, because they become banned or removed from regulatory approval or because they just become ineffective due to insecticide resistance. And finally, um, I'd just like to leave our listeners with a kind of final nugget of wisdom. So if you could... Um, kind of suggest that arable farms were perhaps implementing one small change on their farms to to boost biodiversity a little bit or you know encourage a certain species what would your kind of one tip be i still want to say i think one of the, 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 the biggest and easiest implement things is, is those kind of flower rich fill margins ones that will include some tussock grasses these are the kind of things that, that they create a buffer for other semi-natural habitat, like hedgerows. They create a relatively large area distributed across your entire farm of key foraging resources for bees. You know, uh, bees living colonies, they're fixed. So in a way, having one big field of flowering plants is not that helpful for bees. They need it distributed across the whole site. But that good management, that good establishing of the species that you sow into these individual fields is something that I think is you know, really crucial. It, it's the, probably the easiest, it's probably the most widely adopted as well thing that is likely to have a, a major impact on the, the kind of background levels of biodiversity that you see within the farm. And that's it for today's episode, but I hope there were some tips in there that you can implement on your own farms if you're hoping to improve biodiversity. That was also the last episode from me for a while as I'll be heading off on maternity leave, but I'm leaving the podcast in the capable hands of my colleagues. So enjoy them until next time. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.